time where on Saturday mornings, children got up to do something called watch cartoons. And uh, this is a foreign concept to a lot of kids on, Sunday, or on Saturday mornings especially. And I was an early riser as a kid. And this is when we didn't have cable and things like that. You just had an antenna that was made out of metal that was stuck in the ground outside and had a wire going to it that went into your TV in the back. And literally in the middle of the night, people figured that people should be asleep. And so you remember when TV used to cut off and go... And then to kick it back on in Kentucky, they would play, like, I think the, the Star Spangled Banner in my old Kentucky home, right? And they would show pictures of, like, horses and, like, beautiful farmland. And literally, as a weird kid, I get it, living in the country, no neighbors, no one to play with, I would be sitting already awake watching the... <sighs> waiting for that to come on. And immediately after that, that meant cartoons were coming on. Not these weird cartoons that kids watch either today, but like Looney Tunes, like Bugs Bunny. These sorts of things came on. Well, that was all good until Papa Bear woke up, and I became the human remote control. That means, son, get up, turn the channel. Keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. And when Dad got up, that meant Dad was in control of what the one-eyed devil was playing at that moment. And every Saturday morning, simultaneously, while cartoons were on channels, there were also Kung Fu Saturday morning, all right, and also these spaghetti westerns starring the one and only Clint Eastwood. And in the trilogy of these movies, the last one in this trilogy of these spaghetti westerns starring this guy um, was uh, one called The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. And it had this theme music, and if you've seen the movie, you have never forgotten it. I won't imitate it for you today, but uh, you can look it up. But as a child, I remember hating this movie, okay? Um, Despising it, because it was taking away from my ability to wonder if it was possible if, if, if Tom and Jerry were finally going to make up or if, if the Wally Coyote was finally going to get the Roadrunner because I was always for the Coyote. I mean, I, I wanted him to get him, all right? And so I, in that, I had a major disdain for these three characters that you meet in this movie, one called The Good, one called The Bad, and one called The Ugly. Now, as I've gotten older, I actually was up at like, you know, 4.30 this morning watching clips from this movie because now I have great appreciation actually for this film and the cinematography of it is just phenomenal. The way that they do things and cutting to people's eyes and having them look around and stuff. I mean, it's, it was awesome now, but it wasn't then. Today, inside of the book of Acts, we're going we're gonna to meet three more characters, and, and literally we can look at them and compare them to being the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so we don't want to just look at those things outside of the gospel. We want to look at these three characters in view of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When I talk about the view of the gospel, I'm talking about God is the creator. He's the creator of all things. He's the father of all things. He has created all things, all things are under his sovereignty. That means under his control, that he can do with what this earth, what he wants to do, and whoever lives upon it. Why? Because he is God. But man has fallen. We're broken. 
We have sinned. We deserve the full wrath of God. We call that hell. We are separated from God. We try to work our ways back to God, but we can't do that. So what does God do? It was plan A from the very beginning that he was going to send himself, um, Jesus, from heaven to the earth as the missionary, as the sent one to live a perfect life, to die upon a cross, to absorb the wrath that you and I deserve, the punishment of hell that, that we deserve. And Jesus, upon the cross, drank the full cup of divine wrath. And yet, though the grave thought that he had won, though sin, Satan, and death thought that they had won, this trifecta of, of evilness, it did not. Because on the third day, he was resurrected, redeeming us back to the Father. And in that, we look forward to, and our great hope is that, that one day, Jesus will come back and he will restore this earth and his people back to its original intent. And so looking at that very quick synopsis of the gospel, we want to then look at these three characters and see how our main character, the unstoppable God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, is continuing to grow his church, even amongst people, that it doesn't make much sense for him to do it through. So in your Bibles, if you look in chapter 15, in verses 36 through 41, if you have a, a little subtitle there, it says, Paul and Barnabas separate. If you've been with us, you've seen that Paul and Barnabas, this guy named Paul, who was a terrorist for Judaism, is now a believer in Jesus. And he is now the main proclaimer, church planter, missionary, pastor, preacher, apostle, that is going for spreading the gospel all over the world. And his right-hand man is a guy named Barnabas, son of encouragement. And they were in a place, and they were trying to decide where God was going to lead them next. And they had a, a disagreement on who should come with them. And so they had a really bad disagreement. And yet God, in his sovereignty, actually doubled the efforts by them splitting. And then you go on to chapter 16 here in verses 1 through um, 5. We meet another character, a, a young man named Timothy who was um, part Jewish and his, it's believed his dad was a Gentile, meets up with Paul and a guy named Silas that's now walking around preaching with this guy named Paul, and, and Paul immediately falls in love with this young man's faith and encourages this young guy, Timothy, to go forward with them as they're now spreading the gospel all over the known world. And so let's begin reading here in verse 6. It says this, And they went through a region of um, Phryga, all right, or Phrygia, and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak a word in Asia. And when they had uh, gone up to Mysiah, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night of a man from Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And so I've got a picture here of a map that will help us um, briefly this morning so that you can see uh, what is taking place. This is what's called Paul's second missionary journey. He starts down here in Jerusalem. The red line is him going out. And so all of those names of those places that I just slaughtered um, are listed there as he is working his way. And it's this really interesting situation because he tells us, right, that he, his desire is to go to Asia and to preach the gospel. And yet, what does it say? 
having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit. So instead of heading east, right, God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, leads him away from Asia toward Europe and specifically into this land called Macedonia. And so this is the picture that we begin to see of where Paul, Silas, and Timothy are going to begin planting the very first churches and see the very first converts in this new land of Europe or, or Macedonia. He's going to land here in the city of Philippi, and the city of Philippi is pretty interesting. It's called Little Rome. Um, it was a very historical um, city in, in Roman history. It was very much known for its gold and for its copper. Um, a big fight took place there between Mark Anthony and Octavian. Octavian eventually won, if you know your um, Roman history, and Octavian then became Julius, or excuse me, Caesar Augustus. Um, from there. And so it's a very historical place, a, a, a very big um, place for merchants, a, a very um, melting pot of cultures and society that is heavily, heavily, heavily influenced by Roman culture, beliefs, and um, systems. And so this is where these guys are heading. So in verse 11, read with me. So setting sail from Choaz, uh, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and following day in Neapolis, um, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. All right, let's pause just briefly for station identification because we go from using the term they and these sorts of things to a plural form of now seeing for the first time in the book of Acts that the word we is being used. That's because scholarship believes um, the author of the book of Acts is a guy named Luke. He also wrote the book of Luke. This is the second volume in the gospel of Luke, and it's believed now that as they're going to Philippi somewhere along the way that they have come across this guy named Luke. And so he is with them, and all of a sudden he goes into first person or saying plural, um, uh, the form of that, of saying that, hey, I'm with these guys in this place. So that's just for you nerds out there. All right, so we remained in the city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside of the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the, woman who had, the women who had come together. One who had heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. All right, so the first character that we meet that as, as Paul and Silas and this band of brothers um, hit the beaches of Philippi, they begin to spread the gospel, realizing that there is not a huge Jewish population here because it seems as though Paul's major strategy when he goes into a new city that does not know about Jesus is the first place that he goes is to a Je Jewish synagogues to the religious people, to the church folk, and begins to preach the gospel to those people. He gets to Philippi. Philippi, there's not a large Jewish population, 
I believe there has to be 10 dudes who are Jews for them to actually form a synagogue. And that's not what we see here. There isn't one. There isn't a temple to Yahweh in this city. And so he finds a group of women who are praying by a river, probably doing a Bethmore Bible study or something like that. And they're hanging out with each other. By, sure, somebody's crying. Somebody's cooked something really nice. These ladies are being faithful. The question is, where are the guys at? Where are the, the men at? But they go to this riverside, and they are hearing these ladies praying to Yahweh. And so immediately, Paul and Silas and them begin to preach the gospel to these ladies. And they find a good lady. Her name is Lydia. She's from the city of Thyatira. Now, this is an interesting part right here. Again, nerd out on you. Where is Thyatira? It's in Asia. Where is Paul eventually wanting to go to spread the gospel? to Asia. Who's the first woman he comes in contact with? A woman from Asia. It's believed that Lydia was probably a widow. It tells us here that she was a seller of purple cloth, that this meant that Lydia dealt with, she was a fashionista. I don't know. She sold cloth. She sold fabric. She'd done these sorts of things. Specifically, it being purple cloth, purple was a symbol of royalty. Oftentimes people even call her Saint Lydia in some sects of Christianity. And in that, they typically drape her in purple fabric. Purple dye was a very expensive dye. It was taken from crushed shellfish, and that's how they got these blue tones and eventually were able to make purple as well. And so we learn from this passage that she was probably a wealthy woman, and it tells us, though she is a Gentile, that she is a believer in God. See, there were Gentile people who had great respect for the Jewish God, though they didn't convert necessarily or go through all of the practices they believed in and had great respect and it's believed that Lydia was one of these people that she was a Gentile wealthy lady from Tytyra probably has several homes all over the known globe and is in Philippi at this moment probably doing business of some sorts and she has great respect for God but in that this good lady, this religious lady here that we see, comes in contact with Paul. And what is Paul all about? Paul is all about Jesus. I mean, he is all about proclamation of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. He's wanting to see a church started here in this place. And the, the Bible tells us as he's preaching there that we can see that she begins to open up herself and to, to pay attention to what these men are saying. So Paul and Silas, it's believed, give them a very logical explanation of who Jesus is. We're going to come back to this in a little bit, but in verse 14, I love this passage Mark it down, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was being said. In the words of Tim Keller, Pastor Tim Keller, Presbyterian Church, uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, he says this, the gospel doesn't make one religious. The religious need the gospel. And this is what we begin to see here. We meet a good religious woman. She's a nice lady who begins as God has pressed upon her the gospel through these men. She's converted. She's baptized. It's believed that maybe all of those ladies in that moment were as well. And what does she turn around to do? Hey, do you guys need a place to stay? Why don't you come to our house? All right? Come, come to my house. But Paul and Silas, they have a mission and they continue on to where we meet this next character in our story here today. In verse 16, it says this, 
and we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that, uh, that her hope, excuse me, their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the ruler. So we've seen this good lady, this religious lady named Lydia. Now we, we go to this bad situation or these bad characters, particularly this young girl that is a slave and is essentially being prostituted out because of her spirit and the demonic possession that is within her. One of the ancient Roman oracles um, was considered to be an, a symbol of that oracle was actually a python, and you miss it here in the English translation, but the word python spirit is actually in the Greek. She was considered or, or, or often characterized as this Python. And so we see um, from Roman history as well, the god Apollos uh, was often also characterized as this serpent. And if you had the gift of fortune telling, as it was believed that the, both of these people have, a lot of times they would, they would tell you this, and they would say that, that you have this spirit of a python. Now that just freaked out everybody from my father-in-law to Pastor Justin. If, if uh, Todd was here this morning, he'd be freaked out well because I said the word snake, all right, including my wife. And so with that, we see this slithering serpent, this demonic, oppressed person that is being used probably in a variety of ways, and she is making much money for these slave owners. Following Paul, what is she doing? Kind of like I picture a little chihuahua just chirping at people's heels. She's going around wherever Paul and Silas are preaching the gospel, and what is she saying? Man, here are the guys. They're telling you, they're going to tell you about the God most high, or, or they're going to tell you of the way of salvation, kind of ruining Paul and Silas's. And we, we see here from this passage that this probably takes place over the course of several days. Now, as a pastor um, that is trying to under-shepherd as, as God is the shepherd, and we are under-shepherds underneath him, um, a group of people, one of my favorite passages in, in the book of Acts is this, and Paul was annoyed, right? Paul was annoyed. Like he, he finally got, it says, greatly annoyed. So after days of this little demonic possessed slave girl following them wherever they went, he, he finally gets enough of it. He finally gets annoyed at this girl and he says, you know, in, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And in that moment, he came out and delivered that girl. Man, anytime you go against the culture, and any, man, if you really want to get people upset, mess with their money, right? Mess with their source of income. Ever gotten a, 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 a you know, a paycheck late? 
Ever had somebody mess up on your ticket at the restaurant or overcharge you? Man, if you, if you want to see people get upset, just besides the cable company, I won't mention their name, just go down there, and they start dealing with your money, all right? It's like going to the DMV, all right? You're never getting out of that small hellhole out of that, that time period, okay? I mean, it's terrible. And, and we see these people that are pimping out this young slave, demonic slave girl for money, right? These sorts of things are happening all over our world today. Maybe not from demonic possessed children or adults, but I mean, slave trafficking alone is something that, that we should research and as believers be combating against. And why do those people get really upset when you start combating the sex slavery industry? It's because it's dealing with their pocketbooks. So these sorts of things are taking place, and, and these men, these slave owners, get extremely upset, and they call the, the people that are in charge. Look at these Jewish men. Look, they're taking away from us. They're trying to reach out and to spread Judaism, and they're causing all sorts of ruckus within our town. This is a bad situation. We've met a good lady, a religious lady. We've met a, an oppressed Bad girl and her owners, which leads us to a very ugly situation. Listen to what it says in verse 20. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, magistrates they said, these men are Jews. They are disrupting our city. They are, uh, advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in and attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them in prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. And so, by now, we see this taking place in the, in the center of the city as, as Paul and Silas specifically are now being persecuted and physically beaten. Imagine for a moment being stripped of your identity, stripped of your clothes, placed in front of an angry mob of people who the Bible tells us are joining in on these attacks of beating up these people and then beating you with raw, you know, rods, much like a, a Roman flogging that's taking place, these long beams, these long sticks and that are, are meant to cause excruciating pain to those who are receiving its beatings. Literally, these floggings were meant to, to cause one's back, especially, especially one's back to, for its skin to be filleted off of it to the point where it would hang like tassels off of them. So in this, this beating is taking place to a man named Paul and a man named Silence, Silas who love Jesus, who are about Jesus, who are doing God's work. And not only do they beat them, but they place them into prison. And in doing so, come to this jailer and tell this jailer, hey, make sure that you keep these guys safe and in jail. And what does that passage tell us? That he doesn't just place them in jail but that he takes them and he places them into the inner prison. It's believed that the inner prison here was actually the dungeon, that it was a, a lower place within the prison as well that was made for the most notorious of criminals. 
Man, like in life, all things roll downhill. This was believed to be a very dark place, uh, um, a very stinky place, as it's believed that all the, the, the feces from the other cells would run down and pile up in this dungeon. Along with that, it, we, we see here that they are also put into shackles. I mean, what do these two dudes do? It's not like they're ninjas or green berets in this place. All right? This isn't the movie Expendables like 15 where everybody's like 65 and 70 killing thousands of people. These are two dudes who have been beaten beyond recognition probably without the grace and mercy of God, are taking their very last breath. They're placed into a dungeon filled with fecal matter, stinky, tied up with these, these, you know, these chains and, and, and put into these shackles that as well were meant to stretch one's legs to cause even more pain. There are some um, scholarship that even says that, that in these Roman dungeons that they would take a man and they would actually hoist up his feet where he is hanging upside down where his back is against the ground but his legs are hanging up and they would do this for days or as long as these men were in there so imagine you're Paul and Silas a bloody mess possibly naked you've been beaten broken for proclaiming the gospel and now you are in shackles, these shackles that were meant to torture you. It's my guess that without God intervening in this, that the next day that they're probably going to kill these two men. In anticipation of their death at midnight, in their darkest of night, we see this amazing picture, don't we, in verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he, threw his, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved in your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all of his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. In these men's worst of moments, as they are anticipating, I mean, I anticipation, I have anticipation and anxiety over knowing I've got to go to the dentist in like six months from now. These dudes have been beaten half to death, breathing their last, probably going to die within the next 24 hours. And what do these brothers do? Start singing. They start to sing. They start to sing praises to God. 
They started probably singing possibly even the Psalms, which were a group of songs sang in the Old Testament. I reminded specifically of one of those Psalms, one of my favorite Psalms in Psalm 40. It says this, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew up from the pit of destruction out of the miry blog and set my feet upon the rock. Making my steps secure, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in Jesus. Thousands of years before, this song was written in Psalms. And what do we see taking place? A very, a very reflective scene, don't we? That as these men are in this deep, deep hole, they begin to sing. And when they begin to sing praises of God, they, the earth begins to shake. The chains begin to fall off. What does it say? They, they could, I guess they could have carried a tune. Because it, what are the prisoners doing? What are the other prisoners doing? It says that they're listening to their singing. The earth and the foundations begin to shake. And immediately all of the doors were opened. And everyone's bonds were unfastened. Man. What a beautiful scene as these j- the jailer walks in because in, in most Roman cultures, if, if you're the, the jailer and, and somebody goes free, then they're going to take your life for doing a terrible job. He comes in, he's ready to kill himself. Paul stops him and says, man, don't, don't do that. The man says, what do, I, what do I do to be saved? And what does Paul do? He shares the gospel with this man. And not only does the jailer, this ugly, ugly individual who has been essentially groomed to be an executioner, is, is now a follower of Jesus to the point to where the very men that he was once persecuting, what's the Bible tells us? He's feeding them. He's cleaning their wounds. He's invited them to their house. Hey, tell my family this story. This is probably in the middle of the night, early morning. Wake up the house. Jesus is Lord. And what does the Bible tell us there? That they became believers and that they were baptized. Man, what a powerful, powerful experience of the gospel. Verse 35, but when it was day, The magistrate sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent uh, to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But listen to what Paul says. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and now have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out? Secretly? No. Let them themselves, excuse me, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and, and they were afraid. And when they had heard that they were Roman citizens, they, so they came and apologized to them, and they took them and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Man, how how about gospel boldness for Paul and Silas? 
See, if they would have left, they would have probably killed that jailer. What does he do? What does Paul and Silas and now all these prisoners do? Instead of fleeing, instead of prison break here, they stay put. And Paul, with great boldness, says, man, if they want us to leave, bring it on. Like, you come get us. All right? You come get us. I mean, this is a powerful scene. Why? Because, man, these people, ladies and gentlemen, the early church truly believed that Jesus was the Lord. They truly believed that Jesus died upon the cross. They truly believed in his resurrection. And when you have truly tasted and known of the resurrection of Jesus, you cannot contain the words upon your mouth. You must proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ at all costs. Believe in as Paul would later write, if it is good for me to live, but it is better for me to die. For death is gain for the believer. I mean, imagine a group of people that essentially are so convinced of the gospel of Jesus Christ that they are invincible to even death. And those are a powerful group of people. Some implications that we can take from our passages this morning. I'm going to go real Baptist on you guys this morning. I've got three of them, all right? I may even have a poem by the end, and I'm going to sing, and we're going to take up an offering, so we're real Baptist this morning. The first thing is this, that I want you to understand. I think that we can see from the, from the gospel visiting the good, the bad, and the ugly is this. Number one. It is God who does the work. It is God who opens the heart. If you are resting in this place today and you are saved, I want you to know it was not because you raised a hand at a youth camp. It was not because you said the exact prayer or incantation so perfectly that God was impressed with your prayer language that he eventually saved you. It wasn't in some good act that you did or that you paid in some way for your salvation. If you were saved here today and responded in prayer, it was first and foremost because Jesus Christ, the sovereign Lord, the God of all things, took interest in you. Even when you weren't pursuing him, God pursued after you and when when God comes after you you have no other response than the response when great humility and following after him all the days of your life this is reflective of what even John says or Jesus says in the gospel of John chapter 6 verse 44 no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day salvation is God's work chill out Okay? He has simply called us to be faithful. A few weeks ago, I was sitting down with a close friend and, um, who's not a believer, and I was sharing the gospel with him um, in one of our local restaurants and um, going through the whole bit. And just like you, man, this doesn't make me nervous. Sitting down with somebody one-on-one and sharing the gospel with them, just like you get nervous, I get nervous. I'm like, man, I don't know if I want to do this. I even texted several guys in the church. I was like, pray for me. I'm going to go share the gospel. I knew if I texted them, They'd ask me. So I had to do it, right? And so I sat down with this guy, and I'm sharing the gospel with him. And at the end of it, you know what? There were no tears in that restaurant. There, was, there wasn't any, like, weeping, gnashing of teeth. 
There wasn't any, what must I do then to be saved? There, no Shekinah glory. There wasn't any blue mess. No one spoke in tongues. Nobody was walking on water. My shadow didn't heal anybody that I know of. I mean, there wasn't this big glow at our table. I simply prayed for him. And that was it. And I got home and I was talking to Pastor Justin. I was talking to my wife later about it. I was like, you know, probably for the first time in my life in sharing the gospel with people and trying to be very intentional in doing that, I was able for the first time to rest in, in the knowledge and believing the truth that he has simply called us to be faithful with the sharing. That my presentation doesn't have to be perfect. That I don't have to use a lot of pithy in, in, you know, uh, illustrations or any of these sorts of things that I can even look at him and say, I don't know the answer to that because I had to do that a few times. That, that I can do all of those things, but God has simply called me to be faithful in proclamation and it is left up to him on if that proclamation takes fruit. Christians, brothers, sisters, relax in the sovereignty of God. Trust in the sovereignty of God, even in proclamation. As we see with Lydia, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was being said. If the Lord doesn't, we call this the doctrine of illumination for you geeks out there. If God doesn't open up the heart to the person, it doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter how you say it. All right? You can, you can pack a cross across the United States sharing the gospel with everyone you come in contact with. But if God doesn't open their hearts, they will remain lost. So we need to pray that God would open up hearts, specifically in the city of Bowling Green, that they would become pliable and open to the proclamation of the gospel. That before you sit down with your friends, man, God, open up their hearts. Save my friends. The second thing is this. God saves the good, the bad, and the ugly. Man, this first church in Europe, this first church in Philippi, look at what it is made up of. It's made up of a good religious person. It's, it's made up of a, a former o, oppressed slave girl, demonized. Okay, It's, it's made up of a, a, a Roman Gentile jailer who's probably got all sorts of stories of things that he did. And this is the early church, that the gospel invades a diverse group of people's lives. And, and even for us that are in this room, this diversity of what God is doing and whom God is saying, saving is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Thank God all of our stories in this room aren't the same. I was talking to somebody the other day, and they were, they were talking with another friend from their childhood, and, and they were sharing about um, experiences as teenagers. And let's just say that these experiences were not holy experiences at all. But when that happened like 20-something years later, you can sit down and talk about those things and go, God, how far you have brought us. And this room right now is, is filled with people who can attach themselves to Lydia, the religious good lady. Um, some of you, maybe you weren't demon-possessed, maybe you are or were. Um, you can feel and relate 
to being oppressed in slavery and being in bondage, whether that's to pornography or, or, or meth or drinking or, or whatever it is, but you know what being tied to something like that is, and yet God has saved you as well. You know what it's like to be a secular person like this Roman who's just going about his business and doing whatever and, or, or being a former murderer or, or whatever it is. We see the power of the gospel invading the good because guess what? The good aren't that good. The Bible tells us that, that they're, they're, their righteous deeds are like filthy rags, that they're not good. We see the gospel invading an oppressed person. We see the gospel invading this secular person. Did you know that Paul probably prayed this prayer before his conversion every morning? It's a very common Jewish prayer, especially among men. And this is what he would have prayed historically in Judaism. Every morning, imagine dudes getting up, rolling out of bed. Your wife can hear you praying this. Blessed are you, O God, King of the universe, who has not made me a Gentile, a slave, and a woman. Paul meets Jesus. Jesus meets Paul. Paul's life, he was Saul, right? Is radically transformed for his entire life. Probably every day he got up and he prayed that prayer. And yet the first church... In Europe, in, in Philippi, what does God do with that man who used to pray that prayer? He saves a Gentile, he saves a slave, and he saves a woman. Man, we need to embrace diversity and also embrace that every one of our stories in this room are very different. And yet the main thread should be the gospel that has brought all of this diversity together. Without Twitter, Google, Instagram, or Facebook, the church was the fastest growing movement throughout history because the people who truly believed salvation from God's eternal wrath was only through the person and work of Jesus. Evangelism is simply investing in people's lives and sharing the good news. As, as one of my pastor friends um, often says, we've got to be about investing and inviting. This is what Paul is doing. This is what Silas is doing. Please, Mission Church, let's not make this harder than it is. Are you intentionally investing in someone's life? Are you intentionally praying a very uh, a specific that, man, we're not just trying to reach all people at one time, but we, through this group, through this church plant, through this body of believers, through these brothers and sisters, God, lay upon our heart one person this week or two people this week that we can pray for, invest in. That means eat with them, spend time with them, go to the same gas station, the same Minute Mart, go to the same coffee barista, whoever it is, and begin to build a relationship with those people with the intentions of doing what? Inviting them to two things. Most importantly, inviting them to Jesus. The second thing, inviting them to be a part of a community of believers. And if we want to see Mission Church grow, then we've got to be about proclamation. And that's going to take us investing and inviting as well. This Sunday morning is what we call the air war. This is a dude up here barking orders, pointing you towards Jesus. It's the air war. 
The ground war takes place when we leave this place. We go into our neighborhoods like we're going to do this, this Wednesday night at the Becker's home, and we're doing an outreach, and we're going to be throwing out a free party to these neighbors of there in hopes of not just giving them the best hamburger that I can make, but also, more importantly, a heartbeat of investing in their lives and inviting them to come to Jesus. And these are the sorts of things that we want to see. Remember this morning, who are you? Don't dwell on it, but I want you to think about your past some this morning. See, I think sometimes as, mature, as Christians mature, we have a tendency to forget where we've come from. And we expect non-believers to act like mature believers. When a non-believer acts like a non-believer, guess what they're doing? Exactly what is natural to them. They're reflecting sin, Satan, and death. We should not be surprised by that, but we know the answer to it. And his name is Jesus. The third thing is this. God uses suffering for the advancement of the gospel. God uses suffering for the advancement of the gospel. I think we can all conclude, if we know Christian history, Paul and Silas, Timothy, these gentlemen were like A-listers when it came to being faithful. They were faithful and obedient to the things of God at all costs. Man, do you ever whine and complain about what God does in your life, especially if it doesn't go the way that you think it should? But God, I'm good. God, I'm, I'm, like, I'm a preacher. Okay? Like, why are bad things happening to me? Like, I'm good. Like, like I read the Bible. Like, I pray before meals. Okay? Like, I read the Bible to my kids. I, I you know, I... I, I don't cuss unless it's in my mind. All right? I only drink if I really need a drink. I, you know, I, I don't do tobacco unless Cubans are involved. I mean, I, I'm really good. All right? God, why, why, like, why are these things happening? And yet, what do we see through this story? What do we see through all of the gospel that God uses suffering for the advancement of the gospel? Mission church, people of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, are you willing to be suffering servant as Jesus was our suffering Messiah for the advancement of the kingdom? As Paul and Silas are beat to death once again, don't forget it. For what? Proclamation. Willing to suffer. See, I don't, I don't think this is circumstance. I don't think this is a coincidence. I think that this is the sovereignty of God, that these three issues take place even in the order that they take place so that, that Lydia can be saved, so that this girl can be released, and so that this jailer... He had to go to prison for this jailer to come to know Jesus. Man, read the book of Philippians. You will see this over and over and over again as Paul is, is now in this jail and... We go, man, I can't believe it. Couldn't Paul be doing more for the sake of the gospel if he was out of jail? And what does the book of Philippians tell us? It, it tells us that because he is in jail, that all the Roman guard has heard the gospel. That's believed to be around 10,000 people. Because he's in jail. Because he's in chains. Because he's in bondage. American church, we have got to learn to suffer. And we have got to learn to suffer well. This doesn't mean that we walk around with fake smiles and when people say, how you doing? Well, like we do in the South, doing fine. 
all right? That does not, I'm not talking about faking it till we make it, but I'm saying that in the darkest of night, as Psalm 119.62 says, at midnight I will rise and give thanks for your righteous laws. God is going to use our faithful suffering for the spreading of the gospel. Right now, we have many of our church who are suffering, and I want to encourage you to do something, and that is sing through it. Sing through it. And have you ever been in the darkest of night in your life? And I want you to get this. If you have not experienced suffering, suffering's coming. And I don't tell you that to make you feel gloomy or down, but it is a part of this life, and God often uses it as a tool. And we've had people in our church this week to find out that their dad has cancer. Can we sing through that? Can we sing through the illnesses as our bodies begin to break down or or the loss of a loved one? Can we learn to sing that though the grief is real, your grief is real, you do not have to apologize for your grief, and yet simultaneously we need to understand that the world is watching how we grieve and how we suffer. And when the greatest presentations of the gospel can come, when you are in the midst of your darkest hour, when you are hurt, when you are broken, when you are lying in a hospital bed, and, and those things are real, and with tears streaming down your face because of the pain, you can then simultaneously cry out and sing out praises to God. And what happens when that happens, man? Maybe not in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense, I believe that God can not only release our chains of bondage through that pain, but also begin to minister to others who are wondering how in the world do you make it through what you're going through and still sing sweet praises to God, I want you to know in the suffering of my life where I've mostly found some sort of relief has been in moments of great despair, reading my Bible and singing poorly songs to Jesus. Blubbering, ugly crying, unveiling my heart to God and believing in those songs and ultimately believing in Jesus. See, your theology, what you believe, And what you practice shows up in the darkest of your hours. In the midst of your darkest hours, learn to sing. This is what Paul and Silas do. In closing today, in Matthew chapter 27, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is upon a cross. Much like Paul and Silas, but even worse, he is naked, He is beaten beyond recognition as blood streams from the abrasions on his forehead, his ribs, his arms, the lacerations from the Roman flogging that he endured with the cat of nine tails as it had glass and bone that was meant to act like razor blades against his open flesh. As Jesus hangs there with a contorted body that is twisted and as he is pulling up on those nails because you die upon a cross from suffocation. And as he's pulling up on those nails that are in his forearms and wrist area and and he begins to take those breaths in order to allow his diaphragm to open up so that he could gasp for another breath. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 27 as he's hanging there, as he's pleading, he states this statement. My God! My God! 
Why have you forsaken me? Turn with me. Old book, Old Testament. This psalm, chapter 22. Let us not forget Jesus' Jewishness. Let's not forget that many of those who were gathered around the cross on that day were Jews. In the Bible, Psalm chapter 22 begins like this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're going to continue to read some more of that in just a moment. But imagine, I want to to paint a different picture now. I wasn't there. But the, the Jewish crowd that would have been around Jesus would have understand what Jesus was doing. And it's, it's very possible that Jesus just didn't quote that one line from Psalm chapter 22 as he hung from the cross. It's believed that he probably quoted this entire psalm. And what are psalms? They're songs. It's very possible as Jesus is hanging on the cross that our Lord is singing. And if... If anything, it definitely would have caused those Jewish people who were sitting there who probably had this psalm memorized along with most of the Old Testament to begin to get this tune within their head. So our Jesus, is he's drinking the divine wrath of God. What is taking place? He is singing to these people possibly, or at least causing them to think lyrically about Psalm chapter 22. With that in mind, Let's read Psalm 22, and then I'm done. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groanings? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To to you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. But not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They, They open wide their mouths at me like ravening and roaring lions. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I count all my bones They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they 
cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell you of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. Oh, all you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all of your offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or arbored um, the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My, my vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust even um, the one who could not keep himself alive posterity shall serve him it shall be told of the lord to the coming generation they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to people yet unborn that he has done it and with his final breath it is finished. May we be a people of the gospel, a people who were formerly good, a people who were formerly oppressed and in bondage and slavery, a people who were secular and going with the culture and, and it maybe even hurting people. May we be a people whom um, endure great suffering and in the midst of it learn to sing the gospel as proclamation and remembrance of our Lord Jesus Christ who died the death that we should have died to give us the life that we could not live on our own. May we go forth from this place, Mission Church, being people of the gospel, investing and inviting, loving and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you, God, for your mercy, for your grace, for what you have done in our lives, Lord. And as we come to partake of the table in remembrance of this great work, as we sing praises to you, O oh God, may you continue to do a great and mighty work for the sake of this gospel. May you help us, Lord, to learn to suffer well. And through your grace, Jesus, may you save many. Lord, as we remember your bread, your body, as we remember your blood this morning, may it truly be sweet upon our ears, upon your ears, Lord.